Uh, so good to be together and it hasn't been good to uh, celebrate new life as we've welcomed those little babies uh, into our church family. Um, but it's also uh, got sad news this morning. Uh, m- many of you know that uh, during this week, uh, Lisa Alcorn uh, lost a long battle with cancer and has died and gone to be with the Lord Jesus, uh, which is very sad but very wonderful. Um, she's she's uh, in glory. Um, please though, be in prayer for uh, the family, uh, for Steve, uh, Heather, Shannon, Jessica, Adam, and uh, in this difficult time. And uh, they'd love to invite you, Steve, would love to invite you to the funeral, which is on not this Tuesday, but Tuesday week, Tuesday the 16th, up in the hall at 12pm. Uh, um, so they'd love to come, you to come along to that. But let's uh, pray now for them, pray for us um, together. Oh, Father, we pray for Steve, uh, Heather, Shannon, Jessica, Adam. Um, please, Lord, be their comfort in this time of distress. And please grow in them a, a deep, a rich hope of eternal life, Lord. Uh, we thank you, Father, that Jesus' death has defeated death for those who trust him. And so our destiny is glory. Uh, thank you, Lord, for this morning that we can be together, that you speak to us from your word. Please now continue to speak to us from your word. Help us to engage with it in a humble manner. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Megan and I know a family who, over the last number of years, have just suffered immensely. Suffered immensely. Now, we all suffer. We, we've heard of suffering just now. Every one of you suffers. And if I had a moment, you know, after church where I could sit down for a while and we spent enough time together and you trusted me enough, you'd share with me your sufferings, the pain that you're experiencing, uh, physical, relational, mental, emotional pain. We, we all suffer. Suffering is part of our lives on this earth. But this family, man, this family seems to suffer more than most. Uh, the mother got cancer, bad cancer, uh, cancer in here in a number of places and uh, during the, the, the treatment, the operations, the radiotherapy, got it out but has done irreparable damage and so every day is living with the pain, the discomfort, the embarrassment that goes along with all of that. Uh, cancer's returned so has needed more operations, more radio, um, some organs are not working properly and seem like they're failing and so just daily they, they live with this. During COVID, uh, the husband lost his job because of what was going on, um, and so financial pressure added to what's going on, and then he was diagnosed with a different cancer uh, himself. Significant treatment, now he's in remission at the moment. So imagine the kids and how they're dealing with this emotionally and and the, the mental health issues that are going on for the family at this time. And then we learn that before all of this, this couple had lost twins in birth. Now, when I think about a family like that and the suffering they've endured, it can't help but make me think about the very nature of suffering. Why is it that we suffer and why is it that some suffer so much more than others? Why is it that some suffer disproportionately more than others? What's your answer to that? Why do people suffer? And why do some people suffer so much more? I, I think we want answers to these questions. Now, how does our society answer and think about these questions? Well, I think there's lots of ideas about suffering floating around out there, and I think a lot of people don't think very clearly about it, but often they have a mix of thoughts about suffering in their mind, some of which are incompatible. So there's the view of suffering that there is no God, and so any suffering that you might experience, there's no reason, there's no meaning, there's no purpose behind it, it's just random chance, so don't try to explain it, it just sucks, get on with life, live with it. 
There are some who have a more superstitious or spiritualist view of the world and so see that suffering comes from the spiritual realm in some sort of way and so we need to ward it off or do certain things to protect against it. Some see it as purely the power dynamics of our society where the powerful crush the powerless and there's something in that, but cancer, getting eaten by a shark. Um, But the big one I want to focus on is karma. Why is it that we suffer? Well, classic karma, which is found in Hinduism, found in Buddhism, two of the major religions of the world, because every religion of the world has to struggle with this issue and give some sort of reason for why we suffer, um, think, believes in karma. Take Hinduism. In Hinduism, suffering is totally explained by karma. This view says that when you suffer, you are getting what you deserve in this life for the life you've lived or for your past life, because Hinduism teaches reincarnation. The wrong you have done is coming back to you in the form of suffering, and the good you do comes back to you in the form of a better life. So, someone gets cancer, if you believe in karma like this, then you believe they deserve it. The wrong they have done is coming back to them in the form of suffering. And if a child is born disabled, and it's, it's them getting what they deserve from a past life for the wrong that they have done. Now, that's a powerful explanation because it's complete. All suffering is explained very clearly through karma. But the only hope is for me to live a better and better life, to get away from suffering, and that's quite depressing. And it's fairly incompatible with having compassion on people who are suffering, isn't it? Now, in Australia, I don't think we hold a karma quite like that. To say the child is born with a disability because of the wrong they have done in a past life, ooh, that sounds really bad. That is really bad. But I do think swirling around the subconscious of many people is some sort of sense of people get what they deserve in this life, or at least some people get what they deserve from the universe. You'll hear it in small and frivolous circumstances. So the bloke's walking along with his dog and the dog does a big poo and he knows he has to pick it up. So he's angry with the dog. So he yanks the lead, kicks the dog and then trips over, sprains his ankle and falls in the poo. And someone watching goes, ha <laughs> karma. <laughs> or in more serious circumstances, someone's done horrendous things, terrible crimes, sexual predator, locked in jail. But then you hear they've got an operable cancer. And some people will say, karma. That's right. They're getting what they deserve for the things they've done in this life. When it comes to the question of why people suffer, these sort of things, I think, are swirling around our society. A mix, often incoherent. Oh, it's just random. Oh, but don't do that because you bad luck. It might turn out badly for you. Or you see that person, I can see why they're suffering because they're not a nice person. What about Job's friends? What reason for suffering is offered by Job's friends? Over the last couple of weeks, we've seen that Job has suffered massively, immensely, lost everything, more suffering than I could possibly imagine, to the point where last week we saw he wished that he had never been born. He wished that he could die. So great is his turmoil and pain. His friends arrive and come alongside him and they just sit with him seven days, seven nights. Wow, that's wonderful. They share his sorrow comforters alongside him in love but now they speak chapters 4 to 27 are a dialogue between Job and his three three friends a conversation where you get three rounds so it goes Eliphaz Job Bildad Job Zophar Job round one Eliphaz Job Bildad Job Zophar Job round two Eliphaz Job Bildad Job and Zophar misses out 
I don't know why, round three. So a lot of talk. And it's a conversation about why Job is suffering. And you can see the big reason Job's friends give for, the, for why he is suffering clearly articulated in chapter 4, verse 7. So come with me back, Job, chapter 4, verse 7. And, and it'd be good to have it in front of you. Job 4, 7. Consider now, who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plough evil and those who sow trouble reap it. At the breath of God they perish, at the, anger, the blast of his anger they are no more. The friend's answer to why Job suffers is this, Job, you're getting what you deserve. The innocent and the upright are never destroyed. But those who sow evil and trouble reap evil and trouble. You reap what you sow. Because, verse 9, at the breath of God they perish, at the blast of his anger they are no more. God is just, God is angry at evil, so he punishes evil in this life. The answer to why people suffer is, when I suffer, it is punishment of God for my sin. That's how they answer. Very similar to karma thinking, isn't it? Different, because there's a personal God who is dispensing justice. He's punishing people in this life for their unrighteousness. It's quite different to karma. But similar, because it's in this life, people get what they deserve for how they've lived. The wicked suffer, the righteous prosper. And this thinking is all the way through everything Job's friends say for all these chapters. It's core to their thinking. Look with me at chapter 8. And I think this one might take your breath away. Listen to what Bildad says about Job's children. Verse 1, chapter 8. Then Bildad the Shuhite said, How long will you say such things, Job? Your words are a blustering wind. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. Bildad says... When the house collapsed and all your children were killed, they died because of their wickedness. They died because of their sins. Now, that's heavy. The friends are absolutely committed to this theology. But verse 5, But if you seek God earnestly and plead with the Almighty, if you're pure and upright, even now he will rouse himself on your behalf to, and restore you to your prosperous state. Your beginnings will seem humble, so prosperous will your future be. If you turn from your sin and turn back to God and plead with him, then God will forgive you and make you more prosperous than even before. Sin and you suffer, turn from sin and you'll prosper again. And it's all the way through Job's comforters. One more example, come with me to chapter 20. Chapter 20, verse 4, listen to what um, is said by Zophar about the wicked. Surely you know how it has been from old, ever since mankind was placed on the earth, that the mirth of the wicked is brief. The joy of the godless lasts but a moment. Though the pride of the godless reaches to the heavens and his head touches the clouds, he will perish forever like his own dung. Those who have seen him will say, where is he? Like a dream he flies away, no more to be found, banished like a vision of the night. The eye that saw him will not see him again. His place will look on him no more. His children must make amends to the poor. 
His own hands must give back his wealth. The youthful vigour that fills his bones will lie with him in the dust. Though evil is sweet in his mouth and he hides it under his tongue, though he cannot bear to let it go and lets it linger in his mouth, yet his food will turn sour in his stomach. It will become the venom of serpents within him. He will spit out the riches he swallowed. God will make his stomach vomit them up. The wicked cop it. Oh, they may seem like they prosper for a while. They may seem like they're getting ahead. But eventually their sin will catch up with them in this life and they'll cop it. The foundation of their system of thought when it comes to suffering. Do you see, in their thinking there is a direct line between my sin and my suffering. If it was an equation, there'd be an equal sign in it. My sin in this life equals my suffering in this life. When I suffer, it's because I've sinned. And those who suffer more, suffer more because they have sinned more. Now, I think that aligns with lots of popular Christianity. I think lots of popular Christianity thinks like Job's friends. You live a godly life of faith and you prosper in this life. You live an ungodly life of faithlessness and you suffer in this life. And if you're suffering and you pray to God and he doesn't answer your prayer, it's because you haven't had enough faith and you haven't truly repented. I think lots of popular Christianity is aligned with Job's comforters. Have you come across it? I've come across it. I've met many Christians who, when they started to suffer, were told by their Christian friends or told by their pastor, it's because you're sinning. And you need to repent or because you don't have enough faith. And particularly when they've prayed and asked the Lord to, for, to, to heal them or to take away their terrible circumstances and, and those circumstances don't resolve, they're told it's because of your lack of faith, your lack of true repentance. Now, is that right? Are Job's friends right? There are three major things that let us know whether they're right or not. It's the beginning, it's the end, and it's the words of Jesus. The beginning of the book of Job, the end of the book of Job, and what Jesus has to say about these things. And so let's look at the beginning, the start. The first two chapters, as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, tell us exactly why Job is suffering. The first two chapters bring us, the readers, into the heavenly courtroom and see the Satan accuse God and say that Job only loves him because God makes him prosper. And so God permits Job permits Satan to take everything from Job in order to show that God is the one worthy of all glory. God is the one worthy of all love and honour, even if he gives no prosperity to his people. It's absolutely clear from the opening two chapters that Job is an upright and godly man and not suffering because of his sin. Now, he is a sinner. He is a human. He sins just like all of us. But he's a God-fearing man seeking to obey the Lord in all things, in his heart as well as in his life, asking for forgiveness, making sacrifice when he feels he's sinned. It is crystal clear in those opening two chapters that he is suffering not as a result of his sin. God has bigger purposes in his suffering. God has his own glory to show. And we know about these things because we've read the first two chapters. God has revealed these things to us through the writing of the book of Job. But Job, the man, knows nothing about the heavenly courtroom, knows nothing about the, the dialogue between the Satan and God, knows nothing about why he is suffering. And likewise, the friends who are comforting Job know nothing about any of it either. We know more than the people to whom the thing is, things are happening. We have the book of Job and know the first two chapters, but Job and the comforters don't. So it's a bit like when you watch a movie... And you know more than the main character. 
So you're watching the movie, it's about a serial killer, and, and in a scene you're like, oh, it's revealed. I know who the serial killer is. But, but the detective, the main character, he's not in the scene. He doesn't know. Now, what does that do as you watch the rest of the movie? Well, when the serial killer rings up urgently and says, you've got to get over here, come over to my house, you're thinking, don't go, don't go. When he comes into the house and, and the killer says, come down into the basement, you've got to come down to the basement with me. You're thinking, don't go, don't ever go into the basement. Yeah, we have so much less murders in Australia because we don't have basements. Never, <laughs> never go into the basement. And then, then the serial killer says, have a look over here, have a look at this thing, cast your attention there while I stand behind you. And we're thinking, don't let the killer stand behind you. He's the killer. Because we know things that the main character in the movie doesn't. Same with the book of Job. All the time that Job's comforters are speaking about why Job suffers, the start of the book should be screaming out to us, don't listen to them, Job. This is not the reason you're suffering. We know why you're suffering and it's not this. It's not because you've been unrighteous. It's not because you're being punished. It's because God is permitting you to suffer in order to show his glory, the worth of his honour, even if he gives no prosperity. The start tells us the truth. So as you read the speeches of the friends, you should be thinking things like, no, that's not right. No, that's not right. No, that's not right. Or... Oh, there's something true in what you said there, friend, but it's not the whole truth. Or that principle you've articulated, friend, is right there, but you've applied it to Job in a wrong way. It doesn't fit in this circumstance. The start tells us the friends are wrong. But so does the end. Come with me to the last chapter, chapter 42. And we'll spend more time here uh, in future weeks. But Chapter 42, verse 7. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I'm angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. And so they make sacrifice, Job prays, God forgives them graciously. Do you see the Lord's word to the friends? Verse 7, I am angry with you. Why? Because you have not spoken the truth about me as my, my servant Job has. They're wrong. Verse 8 says they've been foolish. That is, they've not understood reality rightly according to God. But more than that, the Lord says they have not spoken the truth about him. Now, how have they not spoken the truth about him? Because many things they say throughout their speeches are, are, are right and true. They recognise things like, God is the Lord of all things, the ruler of everything. There is no suffering but that which comes from his hand under his control. They recognise the Lord is just and never perverts justice but only does good. They recognise that there is a connection of some sort between sin and suffering. They recognise in one place where the Lord can bring suffering to his children as discipline to make them um, more uh, like their father. They say many, many true things about God and life in their speeches, even if they often misapply them or simplify, simplify them so they're unhelpful. In what way have they not spoken the truth about God? I think the key thing is this. They will not let God be God when it comes to suffering. 
they will not let God be free. Now, we're going to come back to that. But the end of the book of Job, just like the start, tells you the friends are wrong. And so does Jesus. Come with me to Luke 13. Luke 13, verse 1. Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans who blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. So Jesus has been talking to the crowds about the coming judgment of God and how urgent it is that they repent. Some of the people listening to Jesus come up and tell him about a disaster. Now, it's hard to know why, but maybe it's because they've heard him talking about the coming judgment and they want to focus Jesus' attention on people they think are worse than them. And so they tell Jesus about the disaster. There's some people from Galilee, they've come up to Jerusalem, they've made sacrifices in the temple to God. For some reason we don't know about, Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea, has sent soldiers in, the soldiers have killed them. Their blood mixed with the blood of the animal sacrifices. And it seems from Jesus' response that the people are thinking, just like Job's friends, these Galileans who were killed must have been really evil men must have been really bad people, if God punished them by sending Pilate soldiers to kill them. Their view, like Job, is that your suffering is a direct result of your sin. You get it too in John 9. Do you remember the man born blind? And the assumption is, was he born blind because of his sin or his parents' sin? Your suffering is a result of your sin or your parents' sin. Now, how does Jesus respond? Verse 2. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Jesus' answer, no. There is not always a direct relationship between sin and suffering. The universe is complex. God and his ways are complex and sometimes mysterious. Now, there can be a direct relationship between my personal sin and my personal suffering. There are places, a few in the New Testament, like 1 Corinthians, for example, where people, Christians, have been sinning against one another and the result is they've got sick and some have even died because of their sin. It can occur. God can punish us in this life for our sin. But it's not the norm and definitely not the rule. Generally, does my personal sin cause my personal suffering in this life? Jesus answered, no. God's universe and his ways are far more complex than that. Just as the book of Job teaches us, so if you are someone who each time suffering comes to you, a deep fear rises within you. Am I being punished for my sin? Let the book of Job and the words of Jesus take that burden from you. But Jesus does say something, add something, verse 3, verse 5. But unless you repent, you too will perish. Unless you repent... Something worse will happen, you will perish. And I think he's talking about God's ultimate judgment in cutting off sinners from himself. In its immediate context, he's talking to the nation of Israel that if they reject the Messiah and won't repent and follow him, then they will experience God's judgment. But I think it speaks to us all. There is eternal punishment for those who will not turn back to God. 
Jesus, according to him, says suffering and tragedy in our world are crying out to us, repent. Every time you look around and you see a tragedy, you see a death, you see suffering, you see it's meant to go to you, make you go not, ah, worse sinner, worse sinner, worse sinner. It's meant to go, oh, repent. And even as a Christian, keep coming to Jesus and repenting. I think the logic is every time you see tragedy and suffering and evil in the world, it reminds you of the fragility of life, but more it reminds us of our guilt as rebels against God who've turned against him. And as punishment, God has unleashed sin and death into this world, uh, pain and death, suffering into this world. And so every time you look around and you see tragedy, you see disaster, you see suffering, it should, you should be going, not, ah, oh, worse sinner. You should go, ah, oh, I'm a sinner too. The sin that we have all done as humanity has broken this world. I need to repent and turn back to God. C.S. Lewis in his Chronicles of Narnia, you know, the, the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, he said this, not in the Chronicles of Narnia, but the writer said this, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts to us in our pains. It's God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. In suffering, God is mercifully crying out to the world, repent before it's too late, turn back to me that I might forgive. Now, I want to ask one more question. And I think this question will be a big help in applying it to us. Why did Job's friends get it wrong? Because they're a warning to us, aren't they? These men are serious about God. Serious about the truth of God, just like where you want to be. Surely the reasons they get it wrong should be a warning to us. So why? Why did Job's friends get it wrong? And I, I think there's two pieces, but both have to do with a lack of humility. The first is this. They're not humble enough to let God be God. They're not humble enough to let God be free. See, they have a theological system. An understanding of God and the world, a mental map of how things are and operate, which is a good thing. We all need a, a mental map, a theological system, if we're going to move through reality, through life well. But they've constructed a system of thought about God and suffering in such a way that will not let God be God. In their system, my sin equals my suffering. The righteous always prosper in this life and the wicked always suffer in this life. All suffering all suffering is explained in this way. For them, there is no mystery in suffering at all. And God cannot do anything but cause the righteous to prosper and the wicked to suffer. God must adhere to my system. And it's a safe system because it largely operates on the horizontal. You know, if, if we live rightly, we prosper. If we live wickedly, then we suffer. It's safe because that's in many ways controllable. God has to do it this way and I'm to some extent able to control my world. If I live righteously, then I'm going to have a prosperous life. If I live wickedly, then I'm going to suffer. And so I have control to live righteously. But we know chapters 1 and 2. There's suffering that comes on Job not because of his sin. It comes on him because God has greater purposes, good purposes in his suffering that Job knows nothing about. From Job's perspective, there is mystery in his suffering. He doesn't know why. Even at the end of the book, he's not told why. Because God is free to do as he chooses with his world. He's free to do as he chooses in regard to suffering. Because he's God. Now this is more frightening. Because this mainly operates from the vertical down. 
God towards us, God over us, and He is God and can do what He wishes. And so I actually have very little control of whether I suffer in this life. Only the Lord does because He is God. I think as Job's, the speeches of Job's friends move on, what you see is they intensify and become increasingly harsh. I think it's because they're threatened by the things that Job is saying. In chapter 22, we won't go there, but Eliphaz says a bunch of things about Job, about his wickedness and the things he have done, that are either blatantly not true, he's made them up, or he's seen little evidences of sin in Job's life and he's magnified and blown them out, out of all proportion. Why is he doing that? I think for Eliphaz, it's unthinkable and threatening to him that Job might suffer, not because he's been wicked. Because Eliphaz has a system and this is threatening his system. So he doubles down. But isn't the key thing we learn from the book of Job that God is transcendent beyond our understanding? He's mysterious. He's revealed himself truly to us, but we don't know all things about how he operates. And so there'll always remain a mysterious element to the suffering that we experience in our lives. The only proper response to the awesome transcendence of God is to trust him. And even if we never learn the reasons that we're suffering, Job's never told why. Job never knows about the divine counsel and what's gone on there. Here's an application for us. To humbly let God be God when it comes to suffering. Because he's God and we're not. He determines how suffering is apportioned to human beings. In all his goodness. And we don't have much control of it at all. And there's so much mystery. There's so much we don't know. There's so much we do know. There's a lot the Bible says about suffering and the reasons why and what's going on. But there's a lot we don't know. And so the right response is to trust God to be God because he's a good God. And if our system of thought stops God from being God with regard to suffering or anything, then our system is wrong. If our mental map stops the Lord Almighty from being free as the Lord Almighty to do what he chooses, then our mental map is wrong. If our system constrains God to make God always act in a certain way, unless he's promised it, See, if he's promised it, he will do it because he is the faithful God. But constrains God to, that he must act in a certain way when he hasn't promised it, then our system is wrong. In some sense, it's a frightening thing to realise I have very little control over whether I suffer and God has absolute control and does as he thinks best. But in another sense, it's a great comfort because he is profoundly good and he's demonstrated his goodness in his son coming to suffer more than any of us to suffer in misery for us so that he might take us to a place where eternally there will be no more suffering. And this God is in control and has the power to do what is right even through suffering. And particularly we have promises like Romans 8, 28 and 29 which says, whatever circumstances you find yourself in, no matter how bad, God your loving Father has put you in those circumstances because he is doing good to you. He is doing the good of making you like Jesus and keeping you safe for eternity. Why do Job's friends get it wrong? Well, piece one, they're not humble enough to let God be God. Piece two, they're not humble enough to question their system of theological thought. As we've said, they've got a system, a mental map when it comes to God and suffering, and that's a good thing. If we're going to navigate our way through life, you need some sort of map, a framework. They have a mental map, a system of thought, but as we've seen, 
The problem is their system of thought is very simplistic and limited, and because of that, largely wrong. But the big thing to notice is that at no point through all of this do they seem willing to think, maybe I am wrong. Maybe my sister doesn't have all the answers. Even though they know Job and they know his righteous life, even through all the conversations with him, at no point do they think, maybe we're wrong. Their system is rigid, it's locked, it's not open to adjustment. It doesn't matter what extra information or data are going to come their way, they will not change in their pride, they resist any change to the system. And more than that, they try to squash everything through the system. Job's suffering doesn't really fit, but they try to jam Job's suffering through the system. Rather than humbly wondering whether Job's suffering might show that their system of thought is wrong, they try to squeeze it through. It's, it's like a bloke who's taken an old beam out of the house, out of the side, and the house remains standing, but he's got to replace and get the new beam in, and, and, and it's a perfect square, but he's got a rectangle. So, but he starts smashing it in, it's going to fit, it's going to fit. A friend comes up and says, hey, I don't think it's going to fit. Oh, yeah, it'll fit, it'll fit. Boom, <laughs> boom. The friend says, hey, hey dude, it's, it's, it's like a different shape. It is not going to fit. It's going to fit, all right? It's going to fit. And he keeps smashing it. It's not going to, it's going to fit. Loses it, gets angry because everything must fit through his system. In future weeks, we'll hear more about how they've formed their mental map why it's a problem, uh, how they've largely, I think, taken observations about the world that are generally true and made them ironclad rules. But the big thing to notice this week is, at no point do they seem humble enough to think, maybe my mental map is wrong. Maybe my system of thought needs adjusting until the end where God tells them they're wrong and wonderfully they repent and are forgiven. This is the other big application for us, to humbly question our systems of theological thought. I reckon the map image is a really, really helpful one. Imagine, you're an explorer. You come to uh, an unexplored country. You want to build a picture of the country, a map of the country, so you can safely move around and others can safely in the future travel around the country. So you start drawing the map. As you travel to places, as you talk to other people about places they've seen, you start drawing the map and the map gets clearer and clearer and there's more detail. All of the bits integrating. Now, as you make the map, there's bits you're certain about. You've been to that area, you, you, you've looked at it extensively, you, you're absolutely certain. Look, there's a forest there, it's this size, it's this shape, in this location, absolutely certain. There are bits on the map, however, you're not quite as certain about. People have told you lots of things, you've, you've got lots of information. You, you're, you're very certain, but not 100% certain. And then there are bits on the map you really don't know much about. You've got a hunch, you've got some speculation about it, but... That's about it. And then there are spots on the map where in that location you know nothing. You know not what's out there at all. How do you represent the map that you're making? Well, you might ink in the bits that you're absolutely certain about. And then there's the bits that you're pretty certain about and so you pencil them in. And then there's the bits that you just got a hunch about, speculation, you just lightly sketch those in. And then there's bits that you just don't know and so you leave them blank. Now, you do that, that's a pretty honest map of the country according to what you know. When it comes to reality, God, his universe, we are to be mental map makers. And the Lord has wonderfully revealed himself and all we need to know for life truly in his word to us. And so our job is to take what he said and create a correct mental map that is aligned with reality, a system of thought aligned with God's word and the way that God tells us the world and he is. 
But God hasn't revealed everything to us. And so there are some things we can be absolutely crystal clear about. There are some things that being absolutely crystal clear, we, we ink them into our map. There'll be other things where we're reasonably certain about. And so those things we pencil into the map. There are other things which you only have a hunch about. We, we, we're not quite sure about at all. And so those things we just sketch in very lightly. And there are some things that are totally hidden from us. And so God has not told us. They're a mystery to us. He's God. We're not. And so in our mental map, we leave them blank. For example, why we suffer. Now, the Bible says a lot about why we suffer, but not all. There's mystery. There's a lot we're never told. Only God knows, and we are to let God be God. Now, all of this takes humility. To not presume that I know more than God has revealed in his word, and to hold with the appropriate tightness uh, with which the Lord has revealed certain things. So the clear and certain truths of the gospel hold with absolute tightness. They're the inked-in ones. There are things which there's quite a lot of clarity, but we don't have all the details, and so we hold pretty tightly. There'll be things which we just have hunches and speculation, and so we hold those pretty lightly. And there'll be some things we just don't know. Only God knows. And so we treat them as mystery and known only to the Almighty. And so... The challenge is to keep humbly allowing God's word to challenge, to reshape, to reshape, to reshape our systems of thought, even deeply held convictions, to listen to what other people say, let them challenge us, get them to show us from God's word, but keep sharpening our mental map. But all of this takes humility to hold the things appropriately according to God's word. And can I say, it's often young men who find this hard. They get excited about God's word. They love it dearly. They love God. And the young, particularly young men, have a tendency to think they know it all. Now, they were good days, weren't they? And so young men can tend to come a bit arrogant, rigid, without nuance, come across harshly when they speak about the truths of the Bible. Now, there's something just normal and natural about that. Most young men outgrow this over time if, if they're uh, helped but it's when young men grow older but don't grow up and they remain young men in the sense that their system hardens and they're unwilling to listen to others and they'll never change no matter how much information or data comes their way. That's a real worry. And when challenged, when threatened, when threatened by God's word, they grow angry, protective of their system. They fight for peripheral things rather than central things and they try to force every bit of the Bible through their lens, through their system of thought, trying to drive that bit of rectangle wood into the square hole. Or every time the Bible is opened, every growth group, they ride into town on their theological hobby horse because they just want to you know, chat about that thing that they love so much. Um, which if it's the gospel and Jesus, great, but otherwise... So if someone brings me a challenge, brings you a challenge to your theological system and you find yourself getting emotionally upset, angry, worked up, turmoil, have a think about what's driving that. What's driving that? It could be good. It could be because you love the crisp, clear truths of God's word in the gospel and you can't stand when people malign what God says. Or 
It could be you have a rigid theological system that keeps you safe and in control and you don't want it threatened. Even if it's God's word that's threatening it. Humility is the key. Humility to let God be God when it comes to suffering, when it comes to everything. And humility to let God's word continue to reshape your theological system of thought. The band's going to come up now. We're going to sing in a moment. Um, But as they come up, why don't you you think about these things further? Uh, Why don't you pray quietly to yourself um, and think about your humility with regard to God, with regard to his word. And then I'll pray once, once we've done that. Let's pray. Oh, Father, please give us humility. Humility to let you be free when it comes to suffering, when it comes to all things. And humility to let your word shape our thinking in all things. And we ask all this in Jesus' name.